Next Sunday will be the final series in this sermon series called From Creation to New Creation. And no one said that moving from creation where things were perfect to a new creation where things will again be perfect and better would be easy. It's a difficult journey. Every generation throughout history has been faced with difficulty and struggle and suffering, and ours is no different. Europe is once again at war. Did you think last week that we would make that statement today? Once again, a ruthless dictator is unleashing his agenda of fury on the world. Since last Sunday, geopolitical tensions are tenser. One of the world's strongest nations has invaded the sovereignty of another nation. And the map of the world has the potential for changing even this week. I want us to look at three different genres of Scripture in, in reference to world events this morning. One is in a psalm. One is a gospel. I've had you turn there. And the other one will be an epistle or a letter. Let me just share with you one verse out of Psalm 46. It's well known. The first part says this. Be still. And know that I am God. We just sang a hymn of praise together about that truth. Many Christians take comfort in that verse, but they, they forget that that comfort is sunk deeply into the rest of the verse, which has incredible global implications. Be still and know that I am God. Stop being worried. Stop being restless or fearful. Know that He is God. This is what God says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Of all people, Christians should know that Putin is not calling the shots right now. He may be the king of his territories, but there is, as we will close with a hymn of response this morning, a king of kings. The psalm begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Mark chapter 13, let's look at a gospel portion. Look at verse 7. This was read, Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse covers chapters 24 and 25. Mark's is shorter. It's probably the eyewitness account of Peter. It moves quickly. It covers Mark chapter 13. Look at verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China eyeing Taiwan. Earthquakes continue and are by no means less frequent. There are actually reports that they're growing in frequency. Today, the world stands on the brink of unprecedented famines. Though we have eaten well this past week, this past month, this past year, it is not true for everyone on this planet. About 30 million people are experiencing severe levels of food insecurity and malnutrition 
in countries such as northeastern Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen. This is, if you would, the maturing process of the events that will usher in the final state of affairs when we can be looking for the glorious return of our King. The powers of evil will not give up without a struggle. I love what Jesus says in Mark 13, 7. Look at it again. This must take place. These things are not, are not a surprise to our God. But the end is not yet. Verse 1 of Mark 13, just as you saw when Michelle read in Matthew, it sets the, it sets the scene for this sermon. Look at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, it's his last visit to the temple. This is the week in which he would die. He would be betrayed and crucified. He comes out of the temple and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings Herod had built onto the temple, making it seem even more majestic. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Remember, they've just come out of the temple. It's, they're looking at this. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple was important. It was central to Jewish culture and religion. It was impressive and beautiful, a lot like other religious structures in our day. But Jesus, as was his normal concern, was more interested in the hearts of his followers than he was in impressive buildings. He leaves the temple for the last time. He goes to spend the night in Bethany and look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and if you've ever visited Israel, if you've ever been in Jerusalem, you you most will always visit the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple clearly. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. And it's interesting that this sermon is prompted by two questions that the disciples ask. They're questions that we ask. They asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Right? When, the timing, when will this happen? And second, what? What will be the sign that these things are going to culminate? It's interesting that Jesus' response, which we know as the Olivet Discourse, or his sermon, On the Mount of Olives, he doesn't focus at all on timing, but he does start to explain and unfold the what. What will it look like? And in that, you've heard it twice read now, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And these are the beginning of birth pains, but the end is not yet. One of the points of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity, but it is to encourage holy living as we live in the light of His appearing. The disciples assumed the when and the what were closely connected, but look at verse 7 in Mark 13. Jesus corrects their assumptions. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Well, one of the first wars they would experience bitterly is when the Romans besieged Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It was the the first decisive event of the first Jewish-Roman war. 
In it, both the city and its temple were destroyed. Already, 40 years after Jesus speaks this prophecy, are the end time events beginning to unfold. Now, don't be distracted by that. It's not a complete fulfillment. Some of what Jesus preaches in this discourse happen to be near events and some far off events. And a lot of what he says actually refers to both. Keep in mind what he says. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Well, then he uses this interesting term, birth pains. I have the joy of having six children. I know what contractions look like early on, and I know that they become more frequent and more severe. I've never felt them. What is Jesus teaching with an event that happens every day in every country throughout all of history? Birth pains begin, and they're obvious, but then what? They grow in frequency and in severity until finally there's an outcome. I want you to turn to Second Peter. Peter is a mature disciple apostle at this point. This is his final letter. If you're going to write a final letter as an older follower of Jesus Christ, what would you say? Matter of fact, I'm, I'm having you turn to the final chapter of the final letter that a man like Peter is going to write to you. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And basically, he's going to say, remember the truth. Because there's a lot of people who are forgetting the truth. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, in both letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember two things. The predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember the Old and New Testament predictions, plural, predictive prophecies, the acid test or proof that Jesus Christ is God and that God was inspiring the Old Testament prophets as he breathed out his words through them. It is the proof that he is God. The word commandment, however, is singular. In all of its other approximately 60 New Testament occurrences, it always refers to some kind of demand or requirement. Peter most likely is describing the moral requirements that are upon believers as we wait for the end times to unfold. He uses the singular form of the word not because he's thinking of a list of do's and don'ts. He does not say commandments. But of a basic commandment. We might think love God and the second is like unto it. Love others as yourself. But it's interesting back in first Peter one, verse 15 and 16 for Peter, the commandment sounds like this. As he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's letters are filled with with men and false teachers who are unholy. Now he's giving a call of the commandment. Matter of fact, that central command was given by Jesus himself in Matthew 548. He teaches this. You, therefore, must be perfect, complete or holy 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matter of fact, towards the end of this section that I've had you turn to in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, go ahead and look down at verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. As we move quickly towards the end times of the end times, Peter is saying it is imperative for God's children to live holy lives, to be able to discern the error of the false teachers. Because in the Olivet Discourse, all three gospel writers who record Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives, do you know where Jesus starts? He says this, beware of false teachers. They will come and they will deceive people, even the elect, if possible. How do you discern between truth and error? You're holy. You're set apart. You're living in line with God's will. Peter brings together two of the most important issues in his final letter. First, the false teacher's skepticism about a specific doctrine. Do you know what doctrine they're calling into question? Where is the promise of his, of his coming? And second, their disdain for holiness. If you just read this entire letter this afternoon, when you move from chapters 1 to 3, uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, they are questioning Christ's return in glory. And, and in chapter 2, it's an extensive treatment where he talks about angels that sinned, the moral corruption of Noah's day, Sodom and Gomorrah that was turned to ash, and Balaam, who needed a donkey, listen to this, Second Peter chapter 2, quote, to restrain the prophet's madness. This is the theme of the final letter that Peter is writing. History is complete with warnings of God's redeeming activity, but also his judgment. So Peter moves then in verse 3 of Second Peter to recognize and rebuke the scoffers. Look at verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. See, scoffing spawns from unholiness. It's interesting that both Peter and the writer of Hebrews identified the last days as the days from the time of Jesus' ministry until his return. So we are basically about 2,000 years into the last days. John said in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Peter seems to have in mind Jesus' warning in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13.5-6. Jesus says this, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. Well, here's the angle that the scoffers take. Look at verse four again. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's interesting. By removing the truth's of Christ's return, what do they think in their minds they have removed? 
They think they have removed future accountability. They argue if there will be no divine appearance, then we do not need to live in light of giving an account at judgment. Secondly, they say that everything has begun, everything has continued normal since the creation of the world. Is that true? The answer is no. What they are denying is a cataclysmic event, actually two cataclysmic events, creation and the flood, because if that never happened, then there is no need to fear a cataclysmic event in the future. Scoffers actually see such a long delay of the king's return as support that it won't ever happen. Now, Peter's going to shed light on their deception. Look at verse 5. Because God has spectacularly intervened in human history. Verse 5, for they, the scoffers, deliberately, not naively or ignorantly, but willfully, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, okay, creation. As a matter of fact, he's going to mention new creation and a new earth in verse 13 of this passage. Verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So he's, he's calling attention to creation and the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, future event, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Listen to Peter's argument. The word of God that spoke creation out of nothing. And sometimes we think heaven has is, is always been the eternal abode of God. Heaven is actually created, as is our earth. We cannot see the one, we can see the other. The word that spoke creation out of nothing is the same word that warned Noah and gave the command of the waters to unleash from below and from above. And it will also be the word that initiates the coming judgment. That's the warning he gives to the scoffers. Scoffers foolishly dismiss these two previous events, creation and the flood. Listen to what Genesis 7-11 describes as the flood. We think that it just started to rain and drizzle and the water slowly rose, right? Genesis 7-11 gives a different picture. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth from below. And the windows of the heavens were opened. Absolute destruction, swift by a flood of water. And so it will be at the end of history with fire, if you would, a flood of fire. Think of it. The core of our earth, if you just want to wondering about the possibility of this, is filled with flaming liquid. Second Peter 3, 7 says this. I want you to look back down at it. But by the same word, the same word that spoke creation, the same word that gave a command of waters in the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Scientists have taken the temperature of the Earth's interior 
more than a thousand miles beneath the Earth's surface, and the mercury there soars to a temperature of about 6,650 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists estimate that the core of the Earth is 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, a little perspective. Um, if you cook with gas, that gas flame is only 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So the core of the Earth is three times the heat of that gas flame. In addition to the Earth's composition, we have at the center of our solar system, the sun. Okay, here's, here's another perspective. The Earth is 7,917 miles in diameter. Okay, just use a scale, use an architect scale and use inches. So the Earth is about eight inches tall, okay, if you're looking at that. Compare that to our sun, which is 864,000 miles in diameter. So you have eight inches compared to 864 inches. You could line up 109 Earths across the face of the sun, which is burning gas. In addition to the Earth's core and the sun, the heavens are filled with stars much larger than our sun. God can actually use his creation as he did in the flood to bring about the destruction he said would happen on the earth with fire. Add to that our day and technology of nuclear weapons. And we don't say this lightly because just this morning I read a headline that says Putin orders nuclear deterrent forces status raised to special combat readiness. Veiled threat? Perhaps. In a day when Peter would say this, they didn't really fully understand things like the core of the earth's temperature or the size of the sun or nuclear weaponry. But as we are 2,000 into the last days, we of all people can understand how easy the earth can be destroyed by fire in a very literal, non-metaphorical sense. Because of our world events, let me read to you. Let me go back to the psalm I started with. Be still. Breathe. Calm your heart. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Take comfort and refuge and rest in Jesus' words. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, it's okay. This must take place. But the end is not yet. I find it interesting that John said the hour is near and Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7 says this, the end of all things is at hand. That's how Peter viewed the events that were happening in his day. But not only are we supposed to remember the commandment and the predictions and recognize the scoffers and rebuke them, but I want us to look at the second part of 2 Peter 3 in verses 8 to 13 where we need to realize the divine perspective. Here's the aged Peter and look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. It's another way of saying remember. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God views the passing of time 
through a very different lens than we do. As a matter of fact, the eternal God created time. He is outside of it while at the same time chooses to be a very present help in trouble. He is in our moments, but he stands eternally outside of our moments. Don't forget that. He views time from a very different perspective. And the scoffers are actually going to bring condemnation on his character. And so Peter reminds us in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. My dad would always tell me, God is seldom early, but never late. Right? That's trying to view God's ways and works from our, our perspective. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Here's why He's delaying, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says, do you see God's delay? Then I want you to see His love and His patience in how He's working things out as we move towards the last days. Look at verse 10. But here's a reminder. Yes, he's loving. And yes, he's patient. And he desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Like a thief doesn't mean it's going to be some kind of a private or secret return, it simply means it's going to happen when you don't expect it. You're going to wake up and you're going to, re- you're, going to, you're going to see that you left your garage door open and all your tools are gone and it happened when you didn't know it. That's all he's describing here. The description of a thief is also used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me just read to you this extended passage. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, are asleep. Okay, these are saints who died. The question is, what happens to them, those who died before Jesus returns? I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So what so what the Paul's going to teach is supposed to provide hope to us. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, what about timing? When's that going to happen? Remember, there are no chapter divisions in the letters. So so the thought continues in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I want you to quickly look at Peter's application in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Peter gives you a glimpse of the end times as they're going to unfold and the judgments 
in store. And he says this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See, it seems that's the commandment he referred to at the beginning of this section. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, right? Remember the predictions. Remember the promises. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It seems Peter is calling to mind Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. One verse out of Isaiah 65 verse 17 where Isaiah says this, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. That's what we're waiting for. New heavens and the new earth and the new city Jerusalem coming down where we will dwell with God forever. To give you a taste of that in the midst of world events that are unstable, let me make four comparisons and a couple contrasts. Number one, similar to Eden, the new heaven, new earth, new city, we will enjoy the personal presence of God with us. There will be the tree of life, but we will never lose access to it like they did in the Garden of Eden. There's a river. There's fruit. There's a supper in which Jesus Christ will eat and drink with us. Here are some contrasts. There is the day and night in the original creation. In Revelation 22.5, night will be no more. So for those of you who love to sleep, you're like, it's really not good news, right? But remember, you're going to have glorified bodies. There is a curse in Genesis 3. Revelation 22.3 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed. In Genesis 1 and 2, it focuses on two human inhabitants. In Revelation, there's this populated city of staggering dimensions and great beauty. In Genesis 3, there's temptation in Revelation 21:27 it says nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. There is sin in Genesis 3, no sin in Revelation. Leaves were needed for covering because of shame, but in Revelation 22 the leaves are for healing. There's fear in Genesis. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. There is no fear in Revelation 21:8. No fear of war. No fear of death, because there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no loss, and there's no death. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Psalm 46.8 says this, Come, it's an invitation. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We're going to invite our music team forward.
while they get in position to lead us, three passages. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 14, 3. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What a beautiful promise. Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse, a portion we did not read, but he teaches this in Mark 13. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Final passage, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. John records this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And you know who this is. For on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the final chapter of Revelation, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And John's response is what all believers should say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.